Hey listeners, thank you for joining me for episode 25 of Creme de la Crime podcast. This week we're headed to the state of Missouri, and according to worldpopulationreview.com, Missouri has 316 unsolved disappearances. Please keep in mind that this is based off of actual known reported cases. It is possible the real number is higher than that. So grab your wine and let's dive in to a little Missouri true crime. The first story for this episode is about Geneva Verniel Adams. Geneva Adams was born on December 5, 1922 in the state of Arkansas. There's not a lot known about her early life and not much coverage that was ever done on her disappearance. The majority of the information I found regarding Geneva came from an interview her son Steve later did with Dateline. Geneva and her first husband had 10 children together before he sadly passed away from cancer in 1969. Her first husband's name was not released to the public, but after he passed away, Geneva was 53 years old and living in Festus, Missouri. As a single mom, she worked multiple jobs at factories and nursing homes to take care of the children. She did end up getting married a second time, but the year and the name of the man was not released. There were no details available about this marriage, only that it was brief and didn't last very long. Geneva was a religious woman and a loyal member of the Pentecostal church. At the time of her disappearance, two of her ten children were still living at home with her, but the others were grown and living out on their own. It was noted that Geneva rarely drank alcohol, but she absolutely loved to go dancing. On the evening of Saturday, July 24, 1976, Geneva asked her daughter Sheila to drive her to the Artesian Lounge in Herculaneum, Missouri, so they could spend the night out dancing together. This lounge was known to have a rough reputation that included rowdy crowds, bar fights, and loud country music. In fact, one of the owners of this lounge, named Louis Hasty, was shot to death inside the lounge after the place had closed. It was reported that there was a young woman that was also with him when this took place, and sources stated she was sexually assaulted but was able to escape through a window in the lounge and call for help. The person responsible for attacking these two individuals was later arrested and charged, but this incident took place only two years before Geneva disappeared. So I just wanted to make a quick note of this to really show the type of establishment they were visiting that night. Geneva's daughter Sheila was in her 20s at this time, and the two children still living with Geneva were her 17-year-old son Steve and her 12-year-old son Billy. Steve was getting ready for his job at a local restaurant at the same time Geneva was getting ready to go out with Sheila. In the interview he did with Dateline, Steve stated that he still remembers the mood his mother was in before she left for the night. Quote, I hadn't seen my mom that happy in a long time. She didn't drink, but she loved to dance and was excited about going out, end quote. Steve believed that his mother had been lonely following the death of his father and her second divorce. Quote, she really deserved to have a good night out. It was really nice to see her so happy, end quote. 
Geneva and Sheila got to the Artesian Lounge a little before midnight. There are conflicting sources that state she had planned to meet up with someone there, but another source stated she had just planned to go out with her daughter. At some point during the night, Geneva met a man. This man was 20 years younger than her at the age of 33, but Sheila later said that the two seemed to hit it off and dance together for most of the evening. After being at the lounge for a little while, Sheila went to her mother and told her she was ready to go home, but Geneva was having a great time and told Sheila that she wanted to stay a little longer. The man she was dancing with told Sheila he would be happy to give her mother a ride home, so they agreed and Sheila left the lounge. This was the last time Sheila would ever see her mother. The next morning, Steve woke up and the house was completely silent. He was immediately concerned, stating, quote, I thought it was strange because our mom was always there to make us breakfast and there was always coffee brewed when we woke up in the mornings. But that morning, nothing. End quote. After checking her room, Steve noticed her bed had also not been slept in. He immediately called Sheila and she told him about the man Geneva had met, that she had stayed a little longer to dance with him and that he had said he would bring her home. When Steve told Sheila that their mother had never come home, they immediately knew something was wrong and called their other siblings. Steve then headed to the Artesian Lounge to try to track down the man Geneva had been seen dancing with the night before. The bartenders at the lounge told Steve that his mother had been dancing with a regular that they knew by the name of Jimmy Lee Mills and that the two had left together around 1 a.m. Steve immediately tried to find out any information he could about Jimmy and ended up learning that he was a local mechanic and also his younger brother Billy's school bus driver. Steve never revealed exactly how, but the family did manage to find out where Jimmy lived and personally went to his trailer. Quote, As soon as we figured out who it was, we found out where he lived and went over to his trailer and demanded to know where our mother was. End quote. When confronted by her children, Jimmy told them that after leaving the lounge, he and Geneva drove in his Cadillac to a bar 40 miles away in East St. Louis. He stated that when they arrived to this supposed bar, it was already closed, so they turned around and headed back to the area they had come from. Jimmy then said that he dropped Geneva off at a donut shop on Highway 61 in Crystal City around 4 a.m. He claimed this was the last time he ever saw her. I want to pause here really quick because I'm going to tell you more about Jimmy. But just with what we know at this point, why would anyone drive 40 miles at 1 a.m. in the morning just to go to a bar? And why in the world would he drop her off by herself at a donut shop at 4 a.m. when he had promised Sheila he would bring her home? Nothing about this account of what happened makes any sense or sounds believable to me in any way. Steve felt this way too, stating, quote, Why would he drop her off at a donut shop in the middle of the night? It makes no sense, end quote. After speaking to Jimmy and still finding no sign of their mother, her children immediately went to the Herculaneum Police Department to officially report her missing. The police quickly went to question Jimmy, and he told them the same story he had told Geneva's family. Chief Mark Tolgetsky took on Geneva's case decades later and told Dateline that Jimmy Mills was questioned repeatedly, but always stuck to his story and insisted he had no idea what had happened to Geneva. Regardless of his account of events, Jimmy was quickly labeled a person of interest in Geneva's disappearance. Quote, 
Jimmy Mills has always been and still is our number one person of interest in this case. But without a body, we have not been able to charge him, end quote. So now that we've gone through the details of Geneva's disappearance, I want to tell you all about Jimmy Lee Mills. Chief Tolgetsky told Dateline that Jimmy has an extensive criminal record, including charges of rape and robbery. Jimmy Mills is also believed by police to be responsible for the deaths of multiple different women. In 1973, it was reported that Jimmy attacked and threatened a woman with a hunting knife and loaded gun in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. The woman was 20 years old at the time, and Jimmy was charged and convicted with attempted rape, but ended up serving less than one year in prison. In 1976, only five weeks before Geneva disappeared, Jimmy was charged with the rape of a 16-year-old girl who was hitchhiking in Jefferson County. It's important for you to know that Jimmy was actually out on bail for this charge when he met Geneva that night. It was later reported after Geneva went missing that Jimmy only ended up serving two years probation for this rape charge. Over the years after Geneva disappeared, Jimmy went on to be convicted of even more crimes. In 1981, he was convicted of receiving stolen property. A year later, in 1982, he was convicted of escaping confinement. These two charges regarding the stolen property and escaping confinement were not elaborated on in any reported articles, so I'm not exactly sure what was going on with these specific charges during this time. In July of 1985, nine years after Geneva disappeared, Jimmy was named the main person of interest in the disappearance of 21-year-old Cynthia Horan. At the time, Cynthia was living in an apartment in St. Louis and shared a bathroom and kitchen with Jimmy Mills. Police questioned him extensively, but there was never enough evidence to charge him. On July 30, 1988, three years after Cynthia disappeared, hikers in Jefferson County found skeletal remains in a shallow grave. A forensic anthropologist built a clay model of the woman's face and determined that the set of remains belonged to a woman who had gone missing just a few months earlier in March of 1988 named Julie Adams. Police and Julie's family were never convinced these remains belonged to Julie, and police decided to test this theory in 2009. Chief Tolgetsky reported to Dateline that he and another St. Louis homicide detective compared DNA from the set of remains to a sample of saliva they had collected from Cynthia's brother. The DNA came back as a match, and Cynthia's remains were finally returned to her family for a proper burial all those years later. Julie Adams has never been located to this day. In October of 1985, A woman that was related to Jimmy went to the police and claimed that Jimmy had raped her after she refused his offer of $50 for sex. She later ended up dropping the charges and has never spoken to police or the media again about this incident. The last reported update regarding Jimmy Lee Mills came in 2010. Jimmy went to prison in North Carolina on weapon charges and was released in August of 2019. He was last known to live in Indianapolis. As far as I know, Jimmy is still alive and a free man, which is absolutely terrifying. In 2018, police received information that a Jane Doe had been found on September 4, 1976 near the wooded area of Washington Park, Illinois. 
Quote, that area is near where Jimmy Mills said they were going that night Geneva disappeared. Bar stayed open much later over there, end quote. A source stated that the person who had originally found the Jane Doe walked into a convenience store at 39th Street in Washington Park, Illinois, and then told the station attendant that he had found a woman's decomposing nude body in an empty nearby lot and to call the police. This person left before police arrived, and it has never been clarified if this man was ever identified or interviewed by authorities. At the time the Jane Doe was found, the body was taken to the Castley Funeral Home in Fairview Heights, Illinois, and examined the very next day. The coroner determined that the body was too decomposed to identify cause of death, but they did note the person had top dentures, reddish-brown hair pulled back in a ponytail, a small frame, and was a woman between the ages of 35 to 55 years old. Further x-rays did not indicate the presence of any gunshot wounds or any other marks of violence. It was reported that this set of remains was eventually buried in a private cemetery off of a residential road in Fairview Heights. The unidentified remains were forgotten until 2014, when an Illinois state police sergeant ran the Jane Doe's information through the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System database and stumbled upon Geneva's case. After Geneva popped up in his search, he contacted Chief Tulgetsky and Geneva's family. Authorities were able to find crime scene photos and a record of where the Jane Doe may have possibly been buried, but all other evidence surrounding the case had been destroyed. Steve was shown pictures of the remains and was also given the coroner's description, and he was shocked that no connection had been made earlier because he was convinced this set of remains was his mother. Quote, it's mom. I just know it. I believe that's her. End quote. In December of 2018, police obtained an executive order that allowed them to exhume Jane Doe's body. Reports stated that she was supposed to be buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in Grave 1, Section B. Investigators dug up this location, but all they were able to find was a casket handle. Workers even got down in the hole and used rods to poke down into the earth, but there was no sign of anything being buried there at all. Steve was crushed by this news. And since the records were clearly wrong about the location the remains were said to be buried, authorities had to put a complete halt on the exhumation so no other grave sites would be disturbed. Steve stated, quote, It's so frustrating. It's like you're reading a book and the last chapter is missing. End quote. Chief Tolgetsky stated that he believes the answers to Geneva's case are in the Greenwood Cemetery. Quote, I'm 99% sure that Geneva is buried in that cemetery, but without a better lead on where her body is, we just can't dig up the entire area. We have been working on this a long time, and I want nothing more than to give this family closure and peace. We suspect foul play, but at the time the body was found, it was too decomposed to determine cause of death. At this point, the best we can hope for is a confession or for someone to come forward with information about what happened that night. We keep hitting dead ends, but we want to solve this case, end quote. Steve has never stopped looking for his mom. He has continuously done his own research on the case and stated that he saves every bit of information surrounding Geneva's disappearance. The last report about Steve stated that he was currently in his 60s and writing a book dedicated to telling his mother's story. Quote, I want to keep her story alive, 
for her and for her family. Out of us 10 kids, only six of us are left, but we don't want our mother's story forgotten. We make sure to tell our children and grandchildren. It's not over until we find out the last chapter of her story, end quote. Steve went on to tell Dateline that the identification of Cynthia all those years later gives him hope that his mother's case will one day be solved. Quote, it's been a roller coaster ride. Just 44 years of ups and downs. Something happens and you have hope, but then you're let down again. It's tough. End quote. Geneva Adams was last seen during the early morning hours of July 25, 1976, in Herculaneum, Missouri, when she was 53 years old. She is a Caucasian woman with brown hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was around 5'2 and weighed around 115 pounds. Geneva was last seen wearing a blue tank top with a design on the front, blue pants, and possibly a ring with two green heart-shaped stones. Her case is classified as endangered missing. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Geneva Adams, please contact the Herculaneum Police Department at 636 797-5562. The second story for today's episode is about Loy Gillespie Evitz. Loy Evitz was born on December 12, 1947, in Coffeyville, Kansas, to parents William and Jewel Gillespie. She met her husband Donald Evitz in their hometown of Coffeyville when she was 17 and he was 19 years old. The two eventually went on their first date to see a movie on November 4, 1965. The two continued to date while Donald earned his undergraduate degree at Pittsburgh State University. After dating for a few years, Donald enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1968 and he was sent to fight in the Vietnam War. While Donald was away fighting in the war, Loy began studying nursing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, before eventually transferring to Kansas State University, where she ended up majoring in fashion merchandising. Donald wrote to Loy every single week while he was away fighting, and also let her drive his Firebird wherever she needed to go. It was noted that the two were very much in love, and Loy even decorated a bulletin board that she kept in her dorm room filled with Donald's military photos. On November 4, 1972, the two finally got married and moved into a home they purchased together in Overland Park, Kansas. At the time of her disappearance, she had recently started a new job as a legal secretary for a law firm and had been there for almost a month. Even though the couple lived in Overland, Kansas, Loy's work office was located close by in Kansas City, Missouri. On February 28, 1977, 29-year-old Loy went to work like usual and then left for her lunch break to run errands around 2.10 p.m. We know she pulled out of the law office parking garage and went to the area of 47th Street where she parked her car before walking to Hellsberg's jewelry store to have her watch resized. Loy then walked to a couple different department stores before she returned to her car. She then drove and made one final stop at Skaggs Drugstore located on the corner of Main Street, and here she had a cup of coffee and also bought an umbrella. She then drove back to the parking garage of her work around 3 p.m. 
This is the last time anyone would ever see or hear from Loy Evitz. Around 6 p.m., Loy's supervisor called Donald at home and asked why she had never come back from her lunch break. This was very out of character for Loy. So after Donald called her friends and no one had seen her, he immediately reported her missing to the police. Authorities started their search at her work, where they found her yellow 1970 MG sports car parked in its normal parking space number 98 in the Plaza Center Building parking garage at 800 West 47th Street. It was reported that the car was unlocked and the umbrella she had purchased from the drugstore was found on the front seat. An article later released stated that her and her car had, quote, not one scratch on the car body, nor even the slightest shred of fiber from Evett's clothing could be found on the vehicle, end quote. Her cosmetics case was found and was reported to also have no fingerprints found on it at all. This would be extremely unusual because Lloyd took very good care of her appearance and there's no way her cosmetics case would have no fingerprints located on it unless it had been wiped clean. Twelve days after she went missing, on March 10, 1977, a group of children searching for their lost dog found Loy's purse under a bridge at Reinhardt Road on 82nd Street in Kansas City. This location was about 13 miles southeast from the parking garage where her car was located. A search of the area turned up Loy's credit cards and checkbook, but nothing else related to her or her case were ever located. Investigators interviewed more than 200 people and followed up on over 1,000 leads in the weeks after Loy disappeared. They also conducted searches of close-by bodies of water in Johnson and Jackson counties. Donald even consulted a psychic, but no new leads or evidence came from these interviews or searches. The first and only real break in the case came a little while later when several anonymous phone calls were made to the Lee's Summit Police. The caller claimed he had killed Loy and buried her body under a construction site on I-470, which was only located about five miles south from where her purse had been found. The police were able to trace these calls to a man's home by the name of Richard Lee Smith, but when police went to his home, he denied making any phone calls or killing Loy. They did end up searching Richard's house, but no sign of Loy or any evidence related to her was ever found. To this day, he has never been charged in Loy's disappearance. I also wanted to note that only one year after Loy disappeared, 20-year-old Rosie Schlicker vanished from the 2300 block of Home Street on March 14, 1978. The location Rosie disappeared from was only about four miles north from the location Loy was last seen. There has never been any evidence that these two cases are connected, but I thought it was worth mentioning since the disappearances happened within a year of each other and in the same area. Something else I feel is important to note happened on May 16, 1981, when the partial skeletal remains of a woman were found less than three miles from where Loy's purse was found. This person had died from blunt force trauma to the head approximately two weeks before the body was located. Again, no evidence was ever found to connect the murder and disappearances of these three women, but the time period and close proximity is quite coincidental if they were not related in any way. Decades have gone by with no answers. Police consider her disappearance suspicious and everyone seems to agree that she was abducted, 
but authorities have never publicly identified any suspects in Loy's case. No new leads have ever come forward, and her case has been suspended until new information is found. One possible theory discussed is that law partners or their clients could have had something to do with her disappearance. We don't know much about Loy's work history before this job, but it was noted in one blog that she had previously worked for another attorney. There has never been any evidence to suggest anyone she worked with was involved, but it's strange to me that her car was found parked back in her work parking spot, almost like someone had been expecting and waiting for her there. Like I said, the only thing anyone really agrees on is that she was abducted and most likely murdered, but who and why remains a huge mystery to this day. I also want to clarify that Loy's husband Donald was completely cleared as a suspect by police, and there has never been any indication that he was anything but devastated about his wife's disappearance. Seven years after Lloyd disappeared, Donald had her declared legally dead. As recent as the year 2016, Donald still had items that belonged to his wife, and he gave investigators hair from one of her hairbrushes so they could have her DNA permanently on file just in case her remains were ever located. The last update surrounding Loy's case came in March of 2017. Police Sergeant Ben Caldwell stated there were still no new leads and the case would continue to be suspended until new evidence came forward. Loy's disappearance remains the Kansas City Police Department's oldest unsolved missing persons case. As of the AP News report done in 2017, Donald was still alive and was 71 years old when the interview took place. It was reported that he still lives in the same house him and Lloyd bought together all those decades ago. The home is now full of model trains, and Donald stated that the train building helps him keep his mind off of what happened that day. Kansas City Police Officer Caldwell spoke to Donald during this interview and stated that he wept at discussing the loss of Lloyd. Quote, He broke down and cried much like he did in 1977 when he was interviewed by police. He obviously is very heartbroken, end quote. Even after all the time that has passed, Donald is still optimistic that one day someone will come forward with information or that Loy's remains will finally be discovered. Quote, I learned to never get my hopes up too much because they all failed in the end. Surely someone knows something. She's been gone this long. You can't expect her to come back and still be alive. I don't think she ran off, but we don't know. We just don't know, end quote. Donald's brother, David Evitz, ended the interview stating, quote, Don never remarried and never dated again. Loy was the one and only love of his life, end quote. Loy Evitz was last seen on February 28, 1977 in Kansas City, Missouri, when she was 29 years old. She is a Caucasian woman with blonde hair and hazel eyes. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5'5 and weighed around 126 pounds. She was last seen wearing a three-quarter length blue hand-knit sweater with vertical maroon stripes, a maroon turtleneck, maroon slacks, wooden wedge shoes with a brown leather strap, a wide gold wedding band, a wide gold Hellsberg diamond engagement ring, a white gold woman's watch with a square face, and a plaid gold bracelet with a knot. She was carrying a leather shoulder bag and a white purse. Her purse was later found, but the shoulder bag has never been recovered. Her case is classified as endangered missing. 
If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Loy Evitz, please contact the Kansas City Police Department at 816-234-5136. That is all I have for this week's episode. But if any of my listeners have a loved one that disappeared and you would like their story shared in a future episode of this show, please reach out via email, podcast 7 at gmail.com. And don't forget to head to Instagram and follow me at Pod. As always, don't forget to keep your eyes and ears open out here. Until next week, this is Sam signing off. Mm-hmm.